True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Season 5 and the 53rd episode of the True Crime Fix podcast. Firstly, if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. Thank you, everyone, for all the love and support following the last episode. It was so good being back and doing this again. Just a quick update on episode 47, The Rob Knox Story. The documentary was entered into the London Independent Film Festival and won Best Feature Documentary. Congratulations to Aaron, Colin and Joe for all of their hard work. As I alluded to last week, I'm actually going to go onto a bit of a globe trot, and this week I've decided that I'm going to take a trip to North Africa, and specifically Tunisia. Before I start this episode, I need to give you a brief 200-year history lesson on the region, as it will ultimately explain things later in the story. Just a heads up, this is not a political episode, but all will become clear why I need to explain this throughout the next couple of episodes, not as justification, but more to explain some of the motives later. Well into the 19th century, North African pirates had attacked the European coast in order to kidnap and enslave people. To conquer the threat, Great Britain, the United States, Netherlands and France sent their navies to tackle the so-called Barbary states of Tripoli in Libya, Tunis in Tunisia and Algiers in Algeria once and for all. Tunisia was forced to ban piracy in 1816, and within 30 years, the weakened Bay of Tunis had accepted a French consul with wide-ranging powers and abolished the trade of enslaved people altogether. These imposed reforms exacted a large toll on its country's treasury, necessitating heavy borrowing from European banks. Tunisia's centre of political power again ebbed away from its shores and by 1869 the country was effectively bankrupt and its finances were handed over to an international commission. This was a warm-up for the so-called scramble for Africa when the European powers began dividing up the continent between themselves without consulting the African natives. The British... France's 
great colonial rivals accepted French domination of Tunisia in exchange for French cooperation in the British occupation of Cyprus. The 1883 Convention of La Marza established parallel justice systems in the country under which Europeans were judged by the laws of France and local Tunisians under the modified form of Islamic law. The French went about their business of land acquisition more discreetly than they did in neighbouring Algeria. In Tunisia, they managed to get their hands on the best fertile lands without violently confiscating property from individuals. The Tunisian elite initially supported the French rule. Compared with Algeria, there was no massive influx of colonialists and modernisation projects like road building and the improved urban sanitation. But by the time of World War I, the young Tunisian movement began calling for more political reforms. In 1920, the Destour, or the Constitution Party, formed demanding a more democratic government, a move supported by the Bay. The French responded with troops and arrests, meaning that for a while they managed to derail the nationalists' initiatives. One of the turning points for French rule of the African nation was when their soldiers turned their guns on demonstrators in Tunis on the 9th of April 1938, killing dozens of people who came out to support the newly formed Neo-Destour led by Habib Bourjaba. To cut through a few decades very, very quickly, Bourjaba was deported to France before being exiled to Egypt for actions which questioned French rule. In 1951, the French began to soften their position and they allowed Bourjaba to return. At the same time, allowing a Tunisian to become the nominal Prime Minister over a joint French-Tunisian cabinet. It was a significant concession but only fueled calls for more political power for the Tunisian people. Demands that Paris responded to by again shunting Bourjaba out of the country. Everything came to a head in 1954. Nationalist guerrilla violence had thrown the country into disarray. The Algerian War of Independence, which was ironically and completely unplanned, also mentioned in the last episode, had begun, and Morocco, who were also under the rule of Spain and France at the time, were pushing for self-rule. The French army had suffered a humiliating defeat by Ho Chi Minh's forces at Dien Ben Phu in Vietnam on the 7th of May 1954, and conceding that there were significant holes in its foreign policy, France announced its readiness for negotiations on Tunisian rule. In June 1955, an arrangement was reached and Bourjaba returned to Tunis to a hero's welcome. Tunisia was formally granted full independence on the 20th of March 1956 and Bourjaba became the first Prime Minister. Within a year, 
the country declared itself a republic, with Borjaba as Tunisia's first president. Fast forward again, and in the 1960s, Borjaba regarded Islam as a force that was holding the country back. He sought to deprive religious leaders of their grassroots role in shaping society, in part by closing religious schools and abolishing Sharia law in courts. In addition, land that had financed mosques and religious institutions was confiscated and turned over to the Republic. As you can imagine, this did not go down well. The 1970s saw the gradual emergence of an Islamic opposition whose support increased dramatically following the use of the Tunisian military to crush a general strike in January 1978, killing dozens of people. Under increased pressure from Tunisian people and abroad, Bourjaba called the first multi-party elections since the independence in 1981, though through the constitution the Islamic opposition was not allowed to run, resulting in a legitimate cry of foul play. The 1980s were a hostile time in Tunisia and the government clamped down more on Islamic opposition. On the 7th of November 1987, Prime Minister Zin el-Abdin Ben Ali had been instructed to organise the execution of an Islamic group who were convicted of plotting to overthrow the government. Afraid that executing several Islamists, as demanded by Bourjaba, would spark a popular uprising, Ben Ali himself seized power in a bloodless palace coup by getting a team of doctors to declare the now 83-year-old president mentally incapable of carrying out his duties. The man, who was the hero of the Tunisian independence and granted life presidency, was now rejected by the people. Despite Ben Ali using his own faith to slow down the radical aspects of Tunisia's Islamic population, in the early 1990s, an alleged plot for an Islamic coup was uncovered and thousands of suspected fundamentalists were imprisoned. Many others fled into exile. Political parties, journalists and unions were therefore forthwith severely restricted. Ben Ali again tried to appease the fundamentalists by a rather public display of faith, making his pilgrimage to Mecca and ordering that the Islamic holy month of Ramadan was observed. But for the next two decades, Ben Ali's popularity at the poll booths, come election time, seemed to be almost a unanimous, with him scoring an overwhelming 99.4% majority in the 1999 and 2004 elections. These results meant that he used his presidential powers to change the constitution so that he could have a further two terms in office in 2009 and potentially again in 2014. With Ben Ali's public approval rating dropping, however, the other political parties sought to blend politics and Islam away from the country's vote. 
Official censorship in print and online meant that while freedom of a speech was enshrined in the Constitution, it did not translate into meaningful results through the country. The perceived corruption following straight from the presidential palace was rife with the public. The unrest in the country was becoming more and more pronounced. On the 17th of December 2010, a young Tunisian street trader, Mohamed Bouazizi, set fire to himself in protest at his treatment at the hands of the police and local authorities in the provincial town of Sidi Bouazid, 170 miles south of the capital Tunis. He died 18 days later, but his desperate act set off a wave of protests and regime changes across the region. Local protests in Tunisia went national, calling for political and economic reforms. It was an unstoppable tide, and the Jasmine Revolution, or the Arab Spring, as it was so called, which concluded on the 14th of January 2011, forced Ben Ali and his family to flee into exile in Saudi Arabia, where they remain to this day. In October 2011, just 10 months after Bouazizi committed suicide, the Islamist Enhada Party won the largest number of seats in the national elections, although it fell short of the parliamentary majority. And this, my listeners, and I appreciate the start has been a bit of a heavy slog, but this is where our case begins today. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this case has been dedicated to all of those that lost their lives in the 2015 Tunisian attacks. A cruise is the most ideal holiday for people who want to see the world. You can spend a small amount of time in many locations. This is the case for the MSC Splendida, a liner which was run by the Mediterranean Shipping Company. The itinerary for the ship setting sail on the 15th of March 2015 was to depart from the historic city of Genoa, in Italy, the home of the famous explorer Christopher Columbus. On the 16th and day two of the cruise, the ship spent the day in Rome, before moving the following day to Palermo in Sicily. The ship then made its way to the north coast of Africa and the Tunisian capital of Tunis and the port of La Goulette. The plan was to then head to Barcelona before heading to Marseille and then heading back to Genoa. On the 18th of March, the MSC Splendida called at the port of La Goulette in Tunis for its weekly call. The ship arrived with 3,714 guests and 1,267 crew members on board. As is the case every time a ship called in Tunis, a shore exertion was offered to the MSC Cruises guests to visit the famous 
Bardo National Museum. They were the second cruise liner to dock that morning, with the Costa Fascinosa's passengers having already arrived in Tunis at around 9am. With the number of cruise ships arriving in the port, the Tunisian tour guides waiting at dockside were busy. The Bardot Museum houses a large collection of antiquities, including many important mosaics dating back from the Roman and the Catholic eras. It was also situated next to the Tunisian Parliament building. What was on the agenda to be discussed at Parliament during that day? The new anti-terrorism legislation. Somewhere between half past eleven and noon, gunfire was heard at the Parliament building, forcing parliamentary committees to suspend their meetings and evacuate. Little did they know what was just about to commence. Just before noon, a coachload of tourists from the docks arrived at the Bardo National Museum. That was when men in military clothing started to attack outside the museum, firing indiscriminately into the crowds, forcing tourists inside whilst unfortunately slaying many who were still trying to enter. One tour guide told the Il Massagro Italian national newspaper that he had just finished a tour with a group of Spanish tourists, when he noticed a man in his 20s holding a Kalashnikov in the middle of the crowded museum car parks where busloads of tourists were arriving from the port. The man just stood in front of a bus of cruise passengers and began to mow them down. The details of what exactly happened are sketchy at best, so I'll try and fill in as much as I can from the witness accounts the most detailed of which was given by an Italian survivor who had been on board the Costa Fascinosa. Alberto Di Porto is a pensioner from Trastevere near Rome who had decided to celebrate his wife's 68th birthday by taking her on a cruise. Alberto at the time was 71 years old. He was a former trade representative and he had a degree in archaeology, who had long been waiting to visit what he considered to be the Louvre in Tunis. Their tour had already started when the attack began. They were in a magnificent room on the first floor, with the mosaics of the Roman period. Alberto continued, Between two glass cases was this large window, with wooden shutters open. A moment before, he was commenting on the splendour with his wife and a few fellow cruise passengers from Turin who made a comment about the strangeness of being able to walk on works of art of enormous value. Then it began. The attack which had commenced outside and now breached the security at the entrance the gunmen were now inside the museum. The attackers spraying bullets again indiscriminately. Alberto continued, I started running as they shot up the stairs. 
my wife told me not to let them hear us. The couple and some other Japanese tourists attempted to barricade themselves in a room with a balcony. As they had left the main room, the last thing that Alberto saw was a man crumpling to the floor in the centre of the room, mortally wounded, the blood pool starting to spread under his body. There were five of my party, passengers on the Costa Fascinosa, Alberto continued. Then there were four Japanese from I don't know where, and an Italian who came from the other ship, the Splendida of the MSC. Of course we were crying, but we made signs to shut up. Shut up for our best chance of survival. Although the whole ordeal would eventually last approximately three hours, the shooting on that floor lasted at least 20 minutes. Bursts of machine guns, the explosion of at least three grenades in the halls of the museum. The silence that followed was even worse. We were lying down, holding hands. I heard an Italian lady keep screaming her husband's name out, calling, Carlo, Carlo. He yelled at her from another part of the room to shut up. Suddenly, dozens of Tunisian Special Forces men appeared in the courtyard. They were all with their machine guns drawn. They were everywhere, even on the balcony in front of us. One of them waved at me to get my attention. He brought his index and middle fingers to his eyes and then pointed his finger inside as if to ask me what I saw. I turned around and looked. There were at least two people motionless on the ground and blood everywhere. I saw the legs of some men walking up and down the hall. I turned and with my hand on my neck I made a gesture of a cutthroat to let them know that they were dead. He waved his hand at me to stay down. After five minutes, the Tunisian special forces returned fire through all of the windows of the mosaic room. It felt like the gunfire was coming from above, from below, from inside, from the stairs. They never stopped. A grenade exploded near us, I felt that everything was collapsing inside, people screaming and then nothing more. The French window in front of him then opened. Are you injured? asked a man covered in a helmet and mask. No, nobody, get them out. The Japanese tourists were the first out, with their hands up like hostages. Quick, quick, shouted the soldier, go! It was then that Alberto felt the pain in his leg. A soldier loaded him onto his shoulders. Alberto recalled, I saw another person motionless in a pool of blood. I heard an officer say that there were so many injured and there were so many dead. I remember that my wife Anna was with me. She wanted to get in the ambulance but I lost sight of her at that moment. Alberto was transferred the two and a half miles to the nearest hospital. In the Charles Nicole emergency room, 
he recalled many doctors wandering around with the blood-stained white coats who had signs of the most terrible day of their lives on their faces. What was worrying for the doctors was not the dislocated hip which Alberto had occurred during their escape, but the general state of his health. Alberto had had three bypasses, meaning that his heart could have done without this extra shot of adrenaline. At the hospital, they managed to slow his heart rate. As his stretcher was being transported into the elevator, Alberto inquired if there were any Italian victims. He explained to one of the surgeons he had lost contact with his wife Anna as he was loaded into the back of an ambulance. This world of ours is becoming an unnecessarily stupid and bad place, he recalled saying to the surgeon. A nurse then asked him for his personal details. As Alberto gave them to him, he smiled. They had tracked down Anna. She was on the way to the hospital to be reunited with her husband. Another first-hand recollection of events was by a woman who was just known as Geraldine, who gave a live television interview with French TV whilst still under siege. I'm not going to include the audio as it's all in French, but it said, We're in the Bardot Museum. We were on a guided visit. We were on the third floor and we heard shots. There are about 40 of us locked up in a room. We can hear a lot of cries. We can hear everything, shots and then more shots. It is still carrying on. There are 40 of us, all French. They're shooting now. It's inside the museum. Geraldine continued. We are on a balcony with shutters. We are scared to look over the edge in case we get shot. It is very hard to see. Asked if she thought if there was a single gunman or several, Geraldine adds, There is a group. It's quite shocking. The shots resound all around the halls because the space is so immense. Oh my God, there's been another shot, another shot. I have no idea how long we've been here, maybe half an hour. Authorities subsequently released the CCTV of the attackers entering the building. The footage showed two gunmen dressed in all black with automatic weapons walking unimpeded through a large lobby. The timestamp showing just after noon. The grainy black and white footage then shows the gunman passing an unidentified male. They point an automatic weapon at him briefly before allowing him to flee as they made their way up the staircase. After rampaging through the museum and holding visitors hostage, the two gunmen were killed in the operation by the security services at around 3.15pm, but more on that later. There were 20 people, however, who were not as lucky as Alberto on the day. Sarah Jane Adley was 57 years old when she was killed. She was a trained solicitor and a mother from Shropshire in England. She described herself on social media as a full-time mum 
with kids at uni who had worked in Wolverhampton, Bridge North, Telford and Birmingham in company commercial law, training, admin and HR. She was in Tunis with her husband Robert who was unharmed in the shooting. She was a passenger on board the MSC Splendida. Hilda van Neerum was 61 at the time of her death. She lived in Velrek, an area of the Belgium city of Antwerp. She had been on board the MSC Splendida with her husband Gabriel. It was the first time the couple had been on holiday together for 25 years due to Gabriel's job. We were standing side by side, my wife and I, when all of a sudden gunshots rang out. I pulled Hilda over to me, wanted to get her to safety. But suddenly two terrorists showed up, gun in hand. I couldn't help her. She fled up a flight of stairs while one of the terrorists chased her. But the panicky people around me pushed me in a different direction. Then I got two bullets in my leg. And then came the blow. The body of a woman who exactly matched Hilda's description had been brought into the morgue of the same hospital where Gabriel himself was having surgery. I insisted on seeing Hilda one last time, but the people at the hospital dissuaded me from doing that due to her injuries. Javier Camello was 28 years old when he was killed. He was originally from Bogota in Colombia, but went to the University of Sydney in 2008 before starting work as an analyst at American Express in Sydney. In 2013, he moved to London for a year to work before returning to Sydney. Javier had studied for his MBA via the Open University and graduated the university in Madrid the weekend before the cruise. He was photographed standing proudly with his graduation certificate in the Spanish capital. The last photo Javier posted on his Facebook page showed him grinning in a selfie with his parents, his father, retired Colombian army general Jose Arturo Camelo, and his mother Miriam Martinez Camelo, in the Italian city of Palmero. Miriam was also killed in the incident. Antonio Sierra Perez was 75 years old when he was killed and he was on holiday with his wife Dolores Sanchez Rami, who was also tragically killed at the age of 73. The couple lived in the Barcelona neighbourhood of Camp de Labra near the Sant Pau Hospital. Antonio had worked until his retirement as a chemist at the Mortiers Brewery. The couple had two sons. A neighbour who wanted to remain anonymous explained. He was a very active person and loved sports. Huguette Dupro was seriously injured during the shooting 
after being hit by four bullets. She died in Chunye's hospital a few days after the attack. She was 75 years old. She had settled in the town of Erskrow about 50 years before she was killed. Huguette was a very discreet woman who had worked for the town for several years in the canteen of the local school. Many children like me knew her from there, recalled Mark Goudet, mayor of Ascro. Huguette was making her first trip in many years with her daughter, friend and sister and was stopping over in Tunis when the attack took place. She was posthumously awarded the National Medal of Recognition to Victims of Terrorism. Jean-Claude Tissier was 72 years old when he was killed in Tunis. Jean-Claude was a native of the Vorges region of France, which is near the border with Germany. At a young age, he had opened his hairdressing salon in Usillon. It had become his city and he loved to live there and promote culture with a genuine passion. For more than 30 years, Jean-Claude, who was the father of two children, had invested in the Arts and Culture Association that he co-founded with the president, Pauli Cariol. She said, He was very active, took care of the amateur theatre and himself was an actor. This castle where the association sits had become his second home. Jean-Claude was also involved in local politics where he was the advisor to the former mayor from 2008 to 2014. He had a real passion for everything related to cultural activities, theatre, arts and intercultural festivals. He was a very discreet man about his private life, but he was very happy about his life companion. She was also a hairdresser named Nadine Flament. She had joined him on the week's cruise to Tunisia. Mayor Bernard Escudere, the mayor of Jean-Claude's hometown, added, It is fitting that he was passionate about art, that he lost his life in a museum. Jean-Claude was open to the world and to multiple cultural influences. He was above all a humanist, who loved his fellows from all origins of all walks of life. Unfortunately, Nadine was also identified as a victim a few days after the attack. Christophe Tinois was 59 years old when he was killed, and he was from Castel Saracen, just north of the city of Toulouse. He was a predominant figure in the French horse racing scene. He was on holiday for a week in Tunis with his partner when he was shot at the museum, said the chief magistrate. My thoughts go out to his two daughters and his partner. On his farm he had built a trotting track and knew how to breed excellent racehorses for years. 
Christoph's wife had died two years earlier from a long illness after a number of operations. Christoph had joined his daughters in Normandy before returning home to resume his career. A passion for horses that he had been able to pass on to his daughters, both working in the world of racing and wives of well-known jockeys. Giuseppina Bella was 70 years old when she became one of the first victims of the shooting in Tunis. Giuseppina was getting off of the bus a few steps from the Bardi Museum when she was hit by a barrage of bullets from the Kalashnikov right in front of her husband Sergio who was unharmed. The story of the couple is very tragic as in 1999 they lost their daughter Sabrina at the age of 27 due to a serious illness. Francesco Caldara was 64 years old from Novara, a city to the west of Milan. He was killed whilst getting off the bus, making him one of the first victims of the attacks as well. Francesco was a former employee of the municipal transport company and was on vacation with his partner Sonia Reddy who was injured in the shoulder and arm and was admitted to hospital in Tunis, where she was successfully operated on. Arezzo Conti was 54 years old and was from Turin in Italy. Arezzo was a computer scientist. He was in Tunis with his wife Carolina Bottari, who was hospitalised in the Tunisian capital where she underwent a delicate surgery for her injuries sustained in the attack. She fortunately survived. Antonella Sassino was also 54 years old and was from Turin in Italy. She was an employee for the local council. Understandably, her husband, Lorenzo Barbero, was fuming about the organisation of the trip. My wife was not supposed to be there, he said. We tourists may not know, but whoever organises these trips must be informed. How do you go to Tunis on the day when Parliament approves a new law on terrorism? Kemi Miyazaki was 49 years old and her daughter Haruka Miyazaki was 22 years old when they became victims of the attack. The mother and daughter from Satyama near Tokyo had gone to Tunisia on a cruise to celebrate Haruka's college graduation earlier that month. Haruka was a food connoisseur and had majored in food, culture and nutrition. A big fan of Turkish cuisine, she had also chosen the topic for her graduation project. The pair were close and good travelling companions. Their past travel destinations included Turkey and China. Machio Nurasawa was 66 years old when she was killed and she was from Tokyo. She had gone to Tunisia on a cruise with her husband whose name wasn't released 
according to the Japanese news agency, Kyoda. Machio's husband didn't want to leave his wife's body alone and asked the hospital to allow him to be there until her remains were readied for repatriation to Japan. Jarek Konizaka was 31 years old and was from Poznan in Poland, but not much more is known about him. The penultimate two tourist victims were Arturo Nurasad, who was 54 years old, and his brother-in-law Dominic Noazeki, who was 35 years old. Both men were from the small town of Krasnistav in eastern Poland. They both worked as officers in the Remand Centre in Lublin. Artur was a deputy director of the facility and Dominic was an IT specialist. Both men were on holiday in Tunisia as opposed to being on one of the cruises. Both were killed in the car park getting off of a tour bus. There were reportedly two Tunisian victims one a tourist and one a member of the special forces. Unfortunately, I'm unable to find any details about them. Out of the 20 victims, nine had been shot dead before they had even entered the building. The thing that I never understand with attacks like this is the celebration in certain circles about innocent loss of life. Not long after the attacks, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS as we know them, claimed it was behind the attack on the museum releasing an audio message to praise the two knights of the caliphate. The message posted on Twitter accounts, known to be a reliable source of IS propaganda, named the attackers as Abu Zakarai al-Tunisi and Abu Anis al-Tunisi. A statement described the attack as a blessed invasion of one of the dens of infidels and vice in Muslim Tunisia. As with the other cases that I have covered with a similar sensitive nature, I am going to make a conscious effort to avoid religion as much as I can, but there will be times where I need to address claims made. Shortly after the tweets, One of the two gunmen involved in the attack was named by Tunisian officials as Yassine Labidi and was reportedly known to the authorities. Tunisian Prime Minister Habib Essid told RTL Radio that security services had flagged him up but were not aware of anything specific or any links to known militant groups. It is not immediately clear how the identities of the gunmen corresponded with the names given by IS, but it is known that people who commit these heinous acts are often given noms de gar or war aliases. A day later, the second attacker was identified as Hatim Kashnui. So what is known about Yassim Labidi? 27-year-old Yassim Labidi was born in the Ibn Khaldun neighbourhood of Tunis, Tunisia, but he moved to Safax for work after the Tunisian Revolution. Labidi was of average height and appearance. 
He was slim, with a short, trimmed, groomed beard and thinning hair, and enjoyed swimming as a hobby. He came from a middle-class family. His father was retired, and his mother ran a childcare business from their home. Libidi himself worked as a courier for a translation agency, and delivered files and documents around Tunis. For those who knew him in the small village that he lived in, he lived near to the mosque that he prayed at. However, his pattern of behaviour did not appear as a clear roadmap to radicalisation until after the attack. A friend of Labidi told the Middle Eastern Eye News outlet that it wasn't the revolution that changed him. Instead, he grew increasingly disillusioned with the social, political and economic landscape in the uncertain years that have followed. Labidi's ambitions were apparently stifled by this difficult reality. He had a dream like any adolescent, and one day he found out he could not reach his goals. Although he was employed, Labidi saw that his job could not deliver the future that he desired, according to his friend Iqbal Hamidi. It was enough money for him to wear clothes, get some food, smoke some cigarettes, but it wasn't enough to have a family or get married. As part of the change which happened when he was 23 or 24 years old, he became more religious and stopped listening to music. He still treated his friends and family normally, but his views about politics and society became more extreme driven by economic frustrations and the sense that the government was not doing anything to help average people. His behaviour really changed though in 2014. He was already an introvert but Labidi withdrew even further from society and even stopped greeting his neighbours. Cars with Libyan licence plates began picking Labidi up from his house. In December 2014, he travelled to Libya for five weeks under the guise of work. The Tunisian government said in the aftermath he had gone to Libya and trained with a militant ISIS cell. On the Wednesday morning before the attack, Labidi bought some bread and milk from the market and took them to his house. He then took a bag from inside and told his mother that he was going to the Turkish bathhouse. Instead of going to the bathhouse, he went to the complex in Bardo, holding the Tunisian National Museum and Parliament and initiated the deadliest attack against civilians in Tunisian history. Or at least it was, but more on that in a minute. But what is known about Hatim Kashnui? For a start, he went by the name Saba or Yabba. Kashnui became fanatically religious in 2013, according to his elder brother. The youngest son, he remained at home alone with his parents and grandfather and went to school by bus every day in the nearby town of Sibiba. It was there that he became drawn to radicalism. All the trouble started in Sibiba, his brother said. He has talked in a radical way since 2013. He would fast and stay up all night reciting the Quran, his brother said. 
He was always a strict person, and people would feel this awe around him. He would not make eye contact with women. My father felt very afraid when he saw how radical he started to be, he said. On the December the 8th, Kashnui ran away from home. He called his father sometimes, but it was always via Skype, and it was never clear where he was. At one point, he told his father that he was training to fight in Syria and would never return to Tunisia. His elder brother said that he had tried to draw him towards philosophy to broaden his views of the world and that he thought he was making some headway before the attack. He was among the two and a half thousand or so young Tunisians who the interior ministry said had left home to join or train with extremist groups in Libya, Iraq and Syria. Among the estimated 500 who had returned, he was one of the few who had carried out attacks in Tunisia. Initial investigations into the shooting identified some significant flaws. For example, it showed that although there was a security presence on the main gate, it was not policy to search pedestrians or vehicles at all. As a result, Labidi and Kashnui passed through carrying bags of weapons completely unchallenged. They intended to blow up the museum. This therefore changed the point of attack for the security forces who had guessed that they might be wearing explosive belts. They therefore targeted other parts of their bodies when executing the two suspects. A day after the attacks, Tunisian authorities took custody of four relatives of Kashnui. Two brothers, a sister and his father, were all arrested on Wednesday night near the border with Algeria. The relatives were taken into custody on the night of the 19th of March in Kasrin, where the family owned a small farm. Nine people were arrested in connection with the gun attack in total. Tunisia's presidency said four of those arrested were directly linked to the attack and five had ties to the cell. Since the attack, the Tunisian authorities believed that there was a third attacker on the run. Definitely there were three, the Tunisian Prime Minister told French Eye Television and Europe One Radio. Two were killed, but there's one who is now on the run, he said. In any case, he will not get very far. It was believed that the third man was the driver and escaped when the security services had arrived. Following days of investigation, the Tunisian authorities caught up with one of the people they considered to be a prime suspect. Tunisian authorities claimed to have killed the alleged leader of the attack, Lukman Abu Sakra, on the 28th of March. He was one of nine armed militants killed in a raid. Security officials alleged that the militants were members of the Ogba Ibn Nafa Brigade, a jihadist group that has previously claimed deadly attacks against security forces in the country. A spokesman described him 
as one of Tunisia's most dangerous terrorists. The spokesman for the Tunisian Prime Minister told the BBC that Sakra, who was an Algerian citizen, was killed by security sources in the western region of Gafsa. That day, thousands of demonstrators took to the streets of Tunis for an anti-terrorism march, chanting, Tunisia is free, terrorism is out. They marched to the Bardo Museum. French President François Hollande and other world leaders attended a ceremony at the museum. Speaking at the museum, Tunisian President Beji Ayed Sipsi paid tribute to his citizens' defiance. The Tunisian people proved today that they do not bow to terrorism and that as one man and one woman they defend the nation. When Tunisia is targeted, the whole nation stands as one. As well as the French leader, the Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi and other foreign dignitaries attended a ceremony at the museum where a stone tablet was dedicated to the memory of the attack victims. Speaking at the ceremony, President Hollande pledged France's support. We had four French citizens killed there, victims of terrorism, so it was necessary to participate in this march, he said, adding, Today it's about Tunisia and the values it represents in the Arab world and beyond. Meanwhile, a demonstrator told Reuters that the march was to show that we are democratic people, Tunisians are moderate and there is no room for terrorists here. Then there was the declaration that Tunisia was safe for the return of tourists. To be continued in the next episode. So that's it for this episode. Once again, thank you so much for all of your amazing support and loyalty. It is really great to be back. You are all phenomenal. Please make sure that you follow me on one of the social media platforms for regular updates on the show. On Twitter it is at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash True Crime Fix Podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.